Thank you. I'm continuing the series I started with you. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, we, if you read through it, you will see there's five warnings that are given to us. Uh, and we've looked at two of them already, and this morning I want to look at the third warning. It is a warning, it's not a warning that is threatening you and saying, if you don't do this, there's going to there's gonna be trouble. It's a warning to say, pay attention to this and you'll move forward. Uh, so it isn't a criticism, it isn't God threatening, it's God just warning us about the possibilities if we don't keep moving forward and advancing in the things of God. The first warning you might remember when I preached on it, I preached from Hebrews chapter 2, the first four verses. And in, in your Bible, sometimes you have um, headings. They weren't in the original script, but the, uh, those who have put the Bible together have, have helped us with, with some of these headings. And the first one it says there in Hebrews 2 is a warning to pay attention. And the warning is that if we're indifferent or neglectful to the Word of God or to Christianity or to Christ or, or to his teaching, there is, there is a possibility that we start to drift away. So the warning is, be careful, be attentive to the things of God, to your Christian life, because if you're not attentive, you will tend to drift away and not get involved in the things that God would have you. The second one was found in Hebrews, and it's from uh, chapter 3, it starts at verse 7 and goes on to 4.13. And it, it's a warning about unbelief. And of course, these warnings build as you go through the book of Hebrews. It said, be very careful that you, through drifting away, you don't believe what it says in God's word. You read it, but you don't believe it. Or you're disobedient to what you believe. So... As we see these warnings, they start to, to get more serious as you go through. Drifting, unbelief. The third warning which I want to deal with today is found in uh, chapter 5 and from verse 11 and it goes down to the end of chapter 6. It's a warning and it says in my Bible it's about falling away. Drifting, not believing, falling away or falling by the wayside. Maybe the picture of a man or woman running a race, and they just think, I just can't be bothered anymore. And they step off the track. That idea of falling out of the race, falling away from this life that God has called us to. So rather than use that heading of falling away, I want to warn you about not making progress in the things of God. We can all get to a place where we think, I know enough. I don't need to know any more. I understand what it is to be born again. I understand uh, what the Christian life is. And I'll just now, I'll just do this every day. I'll get up. But there's so much more. There's a progression to make. The aim is that we look and act and think and speak like Jesus Christ. If you're not there... You haven't got there. But don't accept anything less than living like Jesus Christ. That is the goal. That is what God is committed to in each one of our lives, that we actually 
live like him. So I want to read this uh, warning to you, the whole thing of it. And then from it, we're going to draw certain truths out to help us to be people who maintain and go forward. Verse 11 of chapter 5. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teaching, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and let's go on to maturity, not laying again the, found, the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permit, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace." Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for who it is, who, who it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident that better things of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your works and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater to him to swear, for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God, this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You might think, whoa, there's some stuff there I easily understood, and there's some stuff there that I just lost you on that one. Well, I hope after the half an hour or so when I speak, a lot of this will become very, very plain and clear. The first thing that I opened up with was talking about people who were spiritually immature. Now, that's not a criticism of anyone. If you're a new Christian, you've got to be immature. You can't be mature just because you said, I believe in Jesus. You grow up through your Christianity just like a baby is born into the world. He's not immature. He's as mature as he can be for the day that he has been on the planet. So it is a question of, for, for, the, for the new converts. Of course, you're new. You're immature. You don't know things. For those of you who have been a Christian a long time, it is possible that you have neglected progressing in the things of God. And you have opted in some ways to choose to be immature. You haven't embraced all that you should have to keep moving forward. I'm not criticizing you. What I'm saying is you have to come to a point where you say, this isn't good enough. Now I'm going to move on. I am going to make a decision that I'm going to grow up in the things of God and I'm going to fully enter in to all that God has got for me. So he lists there four marks of, of spiritual immaturity. Now, you can go through these in your own mind and say, am I mature or immature? No one's here to judge you. You just think through these things as I share them with you. The first things he talks about are those that are slow to learn. Now, do you, are you anxious to learn more of the things of God? Do you come here thinking, I want to learn this morning. I want to hear something that just doesn't keep me jogging along, but causes me to advance, causes me to press on, causes me to go forward. See, that doesn't rest on the preacher. It rests on you desiring and wanting to go forward. Are you interested in spiritual things? Or is spirituality to you just a Sunday morning service? You come, you do your duty, you sing a few songs, you take communion, you, you talk to some people, but you're not really in that, that way of wanting to advance, wanting to progress. Do you read Christian books? Do you listen to other sermons? Do you read the Word of God, and when you're thinking, what on earth is that talking about, start to inquire, start to ask questions, start to look into it, so you discover what it is that God is trying to say. No one can do that for you. Your desire to grow in the things of God is down to you. So one of the, the, the marks is that we're, we're slow to learn. I was a school teacher. Some of you know that. I, school, I taught in secondary schools. Do you know children, they weren't children by then, they were 16 or 17, they left secondary schools in London and couldn't read or write. Now, that's not the fault of the teacher. Nearly all of the kids could, but some, they ducked and dived and didn't bother, couldn't care. They had a bad attitude. They were slow. And they left school, either with no qualifications, and some could not even read and write. 
So he's saying the first warning, or to those that choose to, to be this way, don't be slow to learn. The second one, he says, you ought to be teachers. What does that mean? Am I supposed to be a teacher? Am I supposed to stand on the, on the, on the pulpit in front and, and tell everyone what this is all about? What does this mean? It says all of us ought to be teachers. Not just, not just me. I have a gift. I believe in teaching. I was a teacher. I love to teach. I love to explain things. But it says you all ought to be teachers. Two insights into this. When I read a Christian book, and I try reading other books, but I'm not very good at it. I keep coming back to Christian ones because I'm so passionate about it. As I read it, one thought that's in my head, because I'm a teacher, could I explain this to the congregation? Could this be part of a sermon? Could this be something that I would... And so if I don't get it first time, I read it and read it and read it until I've got it. And then I think, I can explain this now to other people. Now, when you read something, I want you to perhaps have in the back of your mind, when my husband or wife or, or someone, when I see them next, I want to explain to them what I have discovered. So I, I could teach them. So you have to get it on board and understand it with a view that you would share it with others. Do you share what you've discovered with others? See, teachers love to share what they've got. Sometimes I'm in there and I run out of there for someone to look to. And I ran out on Friday and there was Herman. I'll go into the... I said, Herman, listen to this. Okay? Because I'm, I'm passionate about sharing what I have. Are you passionate? When you find something exciting in God's word that you think, I never saw that ever before. Ring somebody up and say, do you know what I've just discovered about this wonderful gospel? It says this. This is a wonderful thing. We, we should all have a desire to share things. I'm not saying that. The word of God says that. This desire to share with others. When did you last get a revelation? Reading the word of God, reading something, and you go, wow, i never seen that before. I see new stuff all the time. All the time. And I want to share it. I go home to Daphne sometimes and she's doing the dinner. And I say, Daphne, listen to this. And she says, not now. Okay? <laughs> not now. No. I said, no, this is so good. Listen to this. And she goes, no, all right then. Okay. And she gets it. Both barrels. Because it's so exciting. We should all be excited about the things we discover about God. We shouldn't be, oh, it's all like nothing. And it... <sighs> that is a sign of immaturity. The third one, it says, you need milk. Milk. What is, what is the difference between milk and solid food? Milk and solid food. It's, it's obvious in the natural, so I won't even go there. What it is in the spiritual, Jesus had two roles as a priest. He was an earthly priest, and then he was a heavenly priest, after the order of Melchizedek, all of you, if you're born again, met Jesus Christ as an earthly priest. The earthly priest was there that when you were in sin, you went to him, you made offerings for your sin, and then you were back in a place of righteousness before God. Now, Jesus is an earthly priest as well. 
He has died for you. So when you go to Jesus as your earthly priest, he explains to you, I died for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Believe and receive and you will be brought back into a place of right standing with God. You will be righteous in front of God. Now, that's the end of Christ's earthly ministry. That's the end of it. And for lots of you, that ministry of Christ, the earthly ministry, finished years, decades ago, long time ago. So you say, well, what's Christ been doing since? Just sitting up in heaven, just waiting. No, no. He is now a priest in heaven after the order of Melchizedek. This is the solid stuff that Christ every day is your priest. He is the one who has the job of causing you to grow up into him. Listen to what it says here. This is a verse, Hebrews 13, 21. Christ is busy now. Busy doing what? What's Christ busy doing at this very moment? What is Christ busy doing? Christ is busy now equipping you with everything good for doing his will, working in us what is pleasing to him. Once he was a priest on earth making sacrifices for your sins, but now he is a priest in heaven after the order of Melchizedek ministering to you constantly every day, raising you up so you will have his character. You will be an imitator of God. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Every day. Never stops. That's his work. His work wasn't to save you and get you to heaven. That was part of his initial work. His work now is to raise you up to be God-like people full of wisdom, full of understanding, full of character, full of grace and full of love. The fourth thing he warns us about here is that the immature cannot distinguish good from evil. When a baby is tiny, it doesn't know good from evil. So what does it do? It puts everything in its mouth. Mud, food, Toys, blankets, anything. It all goes in. Why? Because it doesn't distinguish good from evil. It does in time. Puts mud in and goes, I don't like this. Okay, that comes out. Eats sweets and goes, wow, I like that. That's good. Okay. So it has learned, or he or she is learning, to distinguish between good and evil. We have to do the same. That is maturing as a Christian. New Christians go to meetings. They go to hear some preachers and they go, wow, that was fantastic. Wow, wasn't that one fantastic? Wow, wasn't that one fantastic? It's as though everything they hear from all the preachers is fantastic. Why? They haven't been able to discern between good and evil. They're just so focused on listening. If you're mature, you listen to some preachers and you go, I didn't agree with anything you said. I didn't agree with it. Other ones you think, I do agree with that. Others you listen to it and you say, well, I like that bit, but I'm not sure you were quite right on that bit. See, we become, we become discerning. We become discerning. And you need to be people who discern. 
do you agree with everything I say? Just as well. <laughs> See, if you went, yes, I would say, you're immature. But you go, hang on a minute, Phil. Let me think about this. I'm not saying you're wrong, but explain this. So you become discerning. We have to be discerning. And so he says, you don't know the difference between good and evil. Common sense is usually a good thing, but not always. The children of Israel came out of captivity in Egypt. 14 days, they got to the border of the promised land. They send in 12 spies to have a look at what it was like in the promised land. The 12 come back, 10 say, don't go. There are giants, enormous cities, armies to conquer, wild beasts. It's horrendous. We needn't go there. Let's go this way. Two said, let's go in. Let's trust God. Let's believe God. Come on, let's go for it. Common sense prevailed. Spiritual sense failed. Common sense won 10 to 2. So instead of going into the promised land, they left, they spent the next 40 years eating sand in the wilderness. Going nowhere and experience the wrath of God on their lives. Spiritual sense far outweighs common sense. Often common sense and spiritual sense, they overlap each other, but not always. We need to be able to discern, he's lost this young man. Oh wait sir, okay. See, couldn't distinguish his right from his left. Thank you for that illustration. That was wonderful at this particular time. So, can you distinguish between good and evil? Would you have gone into the promised land? Or would you have listened to the ten and gone with common sense? Common sense isn't good enough if it opposes spiritual sense. And so, immature Christians don't know the difference. So we have to grow in this stuff. Then he goes on to say, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let's go on to maturity. See, the encouragement is, don't stay in immaturity. I've shown you what immaturity is. Please don't stay there. I'm not criticising you. I'm not condemning you. I'm saying, come on, let's move on. Let's grow in this stuff. He talks about foundational teachings. Let us leave the elementary teachings. And it even tells us what the elementary teachings are. It gives us six of them. It says, an elementary teaching is repentance from things that lead to death. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sin. It's not even saying sorry for your sin. Repentance is having a new mind about God and the way God thinks. It is turning away from your own ideas and following the ideas of God. That is what repentance is. True repentance. Faith in God. You cannot have faith in God unless you first repented and turned to him to receive him as God. Faith in God. It talks about baptisms. Do you know about all the baptisms? You say, well, how many are there? There was more than one. Your baptism in water, your baptism in the Holy Spirit, your baptism into suffering, that's a good one. What was John the Baptist's baptisms? What is a baptism? 
of, of repentance. What is a baptism of righteousness? Do you know? You say, well, I'm not actually quite sure, Phil. They're foundational teachings. There is no growing up unless we get the foundations established to, to build what we're building on. You need to know these things. This is what the writer is saying. He says about the laying on of hands. Do you understand about the laying on of hands? The imparting of an anointing, healing, deliverance, the power that flows through the laying on of hands. It talks about resurrection. What do you believe about the resurrection? Are you going to be resurrected? Is your body going to be resurrected or your spirit resurrected? When does the resurrection take place? How does it take place? Where does it take place? It's foundational. It is the basis of how we live and build on our Christian life. goes on to say final judgment. What is the judgment? Where is the judgment? Are you going to be judged? Judged on what? Who is going to judge you? Where are you going to be judged? At what time will you be judged? It's all basic stuff. Foundational. If you go, I don't know about these things, you haven't dealt with the elementary teachings that you need to. Now, if you feel void of this, you should be saying to me after this meeting, Phil, get a Bible study going and teach us this stuff because I cannot grow as a Christian. I'm not saying this. This says this. I cannot grow as a Christian until I know this stuff. Will you please sit down and tell me what this stuff is all about so I can build my life? You cannot build a house unless you put a foundation down. You've got to put a strong foundation to build a tall house. And the house we're building goes all the way to heaven. So you've got to get a solid foundation. Solid, solid, solid. Amen. So you can build on it. If you haven't got one, you ain't going to go nowhere in the kingdom. This is the warning. And what you'll do is you'll fall away because you haven't got a foundation. You start to build and the corner falls down. You start to build and it collapses over here because you haven't built a strong foundation. You must. And then stuff starts to happen and things start to grow. In a minute, I want to look at what a mature Christian is because I've, I've shown you what one who's immature is. What does a mature Christian look like? What are we aiming for here, Phil? What is it really all about? But before I go there, I've got to deal with verses 4 to 6. This has caused some trouble in the church, I tell you, for 2,000 years. The big argument that comes from this, and I'm not even sure it's settled, it's can a Christian lose his salvation, or is it impossible for a Christian to lose their salvation. Let me read these verses to you again. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The initial look at that is we can lose our salvation. If we turn away from him, having committed ourselves to him, there's no way back again. I can understand how people get that. Now, in my research for you to do this, I found 
16 different viewpoints on this particular couple of verses. You say, thank goodness that you're here reading it, Phil, and I didn't have to. I found 16. There might be 60. And these, these opinions, these viewpoints of these verses date back to the first century Christians. They were coming up with ideas what this meant. And some of them, when I read it, I thought, wow, this is amazing you would even think that. Now, do you want me to tell you what I think? Yes. I ain't going to. <laughs> See, you work it out. And don't, don't believe just what somebody else has told you. You read both sides of the argument. Listen, this is about your eternal security. This is about whether you get to heaven or not. This is, this is important stuff. They go, oh, I can't be bothered. Just tell us, Phil, what it means. <laughs> I tell you, I could be wrong. Because all these 16 that I read about, they didn't agree. They were devout, sincere, strong-minded, passionate Christian men. But they, they didn't agree. I'm going to give you three viewpoints. Number one, number one. The writer here is warning of apostasy. Apostasy is having committed your life to Jesus Christ. You follow after him. And then because things get difficult or get hard and the challenge is so much and you lose your way and you drift and you move into unbelief and all this stuff, you go, oh, I can't be bothered. And so you go, I'm, I'm just getting out of this. You never read your Bible, you never pray, you give God no more thought in your life, you go back to the life that you lived. Some say, if you do that, you forfeited your salvation. That's it, it's called apostasy. You had it, and now you don't have it. Others would teach, no, it is impossible for you to lose your salvation. Once you have committed yourself to Jesus Christ and received him, as your saviour, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. And whether you grow or don't grow, that has no bearing on the fact that you are now a child of his and you can never be lost. That's the favourite, isn't it? That's a good one. We'll add that one, Phil. Uh, forget the first one. Don't want that one. I'll go for this one. I'll go for the second one. That's far better for me. Okay. Andrew Murray, who I enjoy reading his stuff very much, he puts it like this. He says there are two sides to this. There's man's perspective and there's God's perspective. So a man, he hears about Jesus Christ dying. He understands it in his head. It makes all sense to him. And so he receives Jesus as his saviour. In his understanding, understand, in his understanding he receives this. He enters into the things of God. He enjoys the things of God. He enjoys sermons. He enjoys going to church. He thinks he is a Christian. He thinks he is one. From God's perspective, he knows that he isn't. Because although he's received things with his intellect and his thinking, he hasn't surrendered all of his life to God. And so for God has never made him one of his children, never sealed him. He thinks he is. Now, there's lots of arguments to support this. A man goes out sowing seed. The seed goes in the ground and starts to bear fruit, withers and dies, and there is no fruit. Okay. 
There's other, other stories, other illustrations. Uh, Jesus says uh, on the Sermon of the Mount, you will say to me in those last days, we did this and this and this and this and this and this and this in your name. He'll say, I never knew you. Go away from me. There are arguments that support the idea that we can think we're saved, but we're not saved at all. It's just an intellectual approach to a philosophy like any other philosophy is in the world. You say, Philip, that's made me nervous. Am I saved? Not saved. Can I keep my salvation, lose my salvation? I tell you, if you study the Word of God, you start with one of these. It's, you always start with one. It depends on the church you grew up in, okay? They'll teach you something like this. And then as you study yourself, you'll move over here and you go, I'm not sure about this. And then you'll read something else and it'll bring you back here. And you end up going, can I? Can't I? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Heavens, what is this? Is this just a mental thing that I do? Has God sealed me with his spirit? What, what is this going on? Am I really a saved person or not a saved person? This might help you. It might not. <laughs> Hebrews 6 and 11. We read it. We want each of you, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. I am going on to the end. That's it. I'm not going to give up. Nothing, nothing, nothing will cause me to give up. So when I get to the end, I will be sure. See, giving up along the path, falling away, you don't have any assurity. Now you go, do you know people like this? I pastored with a guy for 13 years. Right? He stopped going to church for 12 years. He went back to church, he left church again, and now he's saying, I don't even know if there is a God. This man was a missionary. This man was a lovely, godly, spiritual Christian man. And he worked with me for 13 years in the church. He would say, I don't even know if God is true. It can happen. Is he saved or not saved? If you believe once saved, always saved, then he ain't got any problems. Whatever he thinks about God, he's saved. Or if you're on the other side, you go, well, it sounds mighty dangerous to me that he hasn't even got faith in God anymore, so can he be saved? You work it out. You must work it out. You go, well, I'll just be a baby and let you tell me what to do. No, no. Work it out. You could be wrong. But you must think and develop your own thinking. The end is, I am going to press on to the very end. And by pressing on, I'm going to get more like Jesus every day. That's progressing, not just coming to church. Because some people will come to church all their lives and they're not saved. Mm -hmm. They'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll say, you came to church all your life. I don't even know you. You're not born again. I haven't sealed you with my spirit. They go, but I went to church every week. They go, well, that didn't save you. <laughs> Going to church doesn't save you. It is a commitment to God, yielding of one's life. Wanting to follow him with all your heart and all your passion and all your desire. Why? Because he's God. You can't give God the tail end of your life 
a bit of change, a bit of time on Sunday. God says, that's not good enough for me. I want you 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. You are mine. I'm God's every second of every day. And so must you be. And then you'll be sure of your salvation. You'll be sure and keep going. What does going on to maturity look like? Look at that time. Too many preliminaries in this church. <laughs> this, is what, this is the promise. The promise that God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. This is verse 14 of chapter 6. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, the promise that came to Abraham comes to us. Yes, because we're seeds of Abraham, we're Abraham's children, we're children of faith. The promise that came to Abraham came to us. The promise is, I will give you many descendants. That's the promise. Not, I'll give you a happy life, I'll meet all your financial needs, you'll be swanning it, you'll be doing this, that and the other. No, that you will have descendants in the same way that Abraham have descendants. So God is saying, I want to reproduce myself in you. Jesus is saying, I am in heaven as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, producing Christ in you. That is my order, that is what I do. What do we have to do to have God reproduced in us? Firstly, you have to yield your life 100%. Secondly, you have to be obedient to the word of God. You have to be filled with faith and trust God in the darkest, the darkest of circumstances. I shared with you the other week, when Jesus was asleep in the back of a boat, it wasn't a storm. There was, there, it, was a, it was a tremendous earthquake that took place. But Jesus is trusting his father that's what God is trying to develop in each one of our lives. You told me this in the week. It was very important that you said this to me, Dave. Dave, see, when I meet with Dave in the world, I'll give him loads of ideas. He goes, oh, bring me now. I better listen. That's what I'm here for. But Dave had an idea. Dave said, do you know, Phil, you will leave a legacy. That's been prophesied over us, yes? And Dave said, do you know what the legacy is that you will leave, Phil? It will be you will reproduce the Christ in you in other people. Amen. You're spot on, Dave. You're spot on. This is the descendants we will have. Some of you, you say, I listen to Lee and I think it's you speaking. <laughs> I see Lee and I, well, why? Because I have deposited in Lee all the time. And he talks like me, thinks like me, acts like me. You think, blooming there, he's just a chip <laughs> off the old block. No, he's more than a chip off the old block, he is the old block. <laughs> I hope the good stuff is going and the bad stuff is getting sorted out because it's not all good, I'm sure. But you see, what I'm doing, I'm depositing Christ that's in me, in you. You're my legacy. You're my legacy. You're my legacy. That which is of Christ that is in me, I'm pouring it into you. And so you receive Christ. 
So as we, as we live and move and have our being in Christ, in the home, in the workplace, in the street, with our friendships, because God is in us, we are leaving a deposit, a legacy. We have descendants. In the same way that Abraham would have many descendants, you can have many descendants. You must associate with people. Share the truth that you have. Allow the love of God to flow through you. And it's not necessarily teaching. When we go on mission, we all write about the other people secretly on a sheet of paper. When you get it, what eight other people think about you on mission, you'll cry. You will. Oh, she cries all the time. Bless her contact. People say this, I just see Christ in you. Your godly patience, your kindness, the way you treat your wife or, or whatever it is. And we're looking for positives to say. But you see what it is. You become my descendants. As I live this godly life before you, as you look at me, as you examine my life, as you listen to what I say, as you see me in the marriage situation, bringing up my children, with my children, whatever it is, God is in me. And he flows out. Paul said, as I follow Christ, follow me. You are my descendants. As in the case that Adam or Abraham or Noah multiplied they went forth and multiplied descendants in the earth. You were saved to leave a legacy. A legacy. A legacy of Christian people who, who flow out of your ministry or who you are as a person. The last thing i just got to say here, it was really amazing. It, just, it, t it was the greatest revelation that I've received this year. I, I want to go for it. When I read this, God says to this in Hebrews 6.17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose, which is to form Christ in you and for you to have a legacy and Christ flow out from you and touch other people, his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Now this is amazing. This is amazing. See, God could have said to you, I will form Christ in you. And that's enough. That's God speaking. I will form Christ in you. But he doesn't say that. He says, listen, I swear by myself I will form Christ in you. Now, hang on. God doesn't have to swear by anything. If God says it, it happens. But he says, listen, I want you to know how much I'm going to do this in you. And I swear, I swear on oath by myself, I will form Christ in you. And you go, oh God, you don't have to swear, God, please. He says, I really want you to know that I'm going to do this thing. It isn't just some light thing. I'm going to form Christ in you. And I swear on oath, I'm going to do it. I'm amazed. Why would God swear to us? This is God. You're a vapor. You're, you're nothing. You're dust. 
But God swears to change you into the person of Christ. I think that's good enough for me, God. The warning, don't stay as a baby Christian. Study, grow, progress. Let Christ your heavenly father, let Christ your high priest form himself in you. Then you will have descendants Others who look to you, they see Christ in you. And in turn, Christ is formed in them because of you. Isn't that exciting? It's your ministry. It's not just my ministry. It's your ministry. Because people are looking at you all the time. They're looking at the possible love, the grace, the peace all the virtues of God pouring out of your life. And God says, yield yourself to me, and I swear by myself, I will form Christ in you. Let's just bow our heads and pray now this time. Heavenly Father, this salvation we have is so wonderful. Lord, forgive us if we treat it lightly, even if we despise it. Lord, we're so sorry. Lord, I pray for each one here that they will have a passion to grow, to progress, not to stay locked into a childish thing, but to expand beyond that. So they enter into the full measure of God in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. Amen.